All right, thank you all for joining us today. I am Josh Bishop, and I have here with me Gary Crowell Sr. Sr. And the, the confusion there is I have worked with Gary Jr. Uh, we've actually shared offices for a cumul cumulative total of several years. So um, there, there is part of the confusion. But I just want to say thank you, Gary Sr., for coming and joining with us today. Well, you're welcome. It's uh, interesting. This is uh, unusual for me, but uh, I think we'll have fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so. And I, I'd say the reason it's unusual is because you're an electrical engineer and have been for decades now, correct? Uh, 40 years or more. Mm -hmm. And you don't normally get put right in front of a microphone for not, engineering, do you? Not usually. Yeah. Well, and that's actually why I want to pick your brain today is um, you've been doing this a long time and... Um, the times that I've met you in the past, you've had some very, very interesting stories to tell, and I really want to get your perspective on your life and your experiences as an engineer. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I can't say if my experience has been typical, but it's been varied. I've, I've worked for large companies and small companies and good companies and bad companies and <laughs> just about uh, just about everything in between. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's, uh, fairly common. I, I don't know. Maybe that that's atypical, but I feel like there are a lot of people that would look back at their career and say, yes, that was a great job. And, uh, that was a terrible job. It has a great manager. So where going back to the beginning, even before you started your career, what caused you to say, I want to be an electrical engineer? I was going to be an electrical engineer from the seventh grade. I knew that absolutely. And there was no, no other... Uh, uh, avenues that I uh, entertained. I uh, had some very good teachers, a very understanding mother, got into some projects that uh, just drove me down that path. And uh, so it's what I wanted to do from a very early age. And what are some of the specific projects that you worked on that really kindled your interest? I can nail it down to a specific book titled uh, computers from sand table to electronic brain and in the back of that book it had uh, instructions for building a computer uh, computer quotation marks but it actually was an electronic device it turns out it's just a counter with a, a series of flip-flops but in that era which was around 1964 or 5 uh, it was built out of transistors, individual things, and I had no experience and no mentor to uh, explain how to do things, yet that book had enough uh, clarity and instructions that I was able to build that thing, and it worked. And uh, when I think back about it, that's why I say my mother was understanding it was horrendously expensive for the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, a, a single flip-flop with two transistors the transistors cost twelve dollars each in nineteen sixty four. Wow! Uh, and it had uh, it had a telephone dial on it. I had to go buy a telephone dial, and at the time, Bell didn't sell telephone dials. <laughs> they didn't want people building their own telephones. So my mother engineered that to get me a telephone dial, and uh, you would dial in a number and. The counter would count up the pulses from the telephone dial, and you could flip a switch and subtract from that thing, and it, it worked fabulous, and uh, that was the start. And uh, the fact that it actually worked and I was able to make it do it just charged me up for everything else. Yeah, I would say from personal experience, it's much more motivating when things work than when they don't work. Yes, very much so. And so is that you went straight line from there? You graduated high school and went straight to college, or did you have any deviations on the way? Well, I went to college for one year at the University of Oklahoma and then had a slight deviation in that uh, I got married, and continuing college didn't quite uh, seem feasible, so I enlisted in the Air Force. Uh, in the Air Force, I was trained for crypto maintenance, which was uh, a very uh, involved electronics field, and uh, I enjoyed that very much. And uh, while I was in the Air Force, I still intended to be an electrical engineer. Uh, but during that time that I was enlisted, I took every advantage of uh, every junior college along the way, 
to take classes in every uh, correspondence course that the Air Force offered, and uh, eventually qualified for a ROTC scholarship uh, from the Air Force. So I'd spent almost four years uh, enlisted, and I was stationed in Alaska at the time. So uh, being in Alaska, uh, Arizona State sounded like a, a warmer place to be. So that's where I went for my scholarship. Kind of a funny thing about that, I actually lied to them. Or, uh, <laughs> well, or I, I didn't correct their, their misconception. Uh, you had to be able to complete a degree for the scholarship within two years. It was a two-year scholarship. That's all I expected. So to qualify, you had to have 90 semester hours. Well, I had like 150 semester hours at the time. Uh, but again, it was from junior colleges and correspondence courses. The things that really didn't apply to an engineering degree, I had uh, credit for a speech class uh, by correspondence. I never gave a speech. <laughs> uh, go figure. I had astronomy credits. I had uh, history credits, all sorts of things. But uh, as it turns out, when I, uh, it was enough to convince them that I could go to school and get a degree. But when I laid out my course plan, I had to do 96 semester hours in two years, and most of that being the engineering core courses. Which are not easy, just you know, no. go in, sit, take a couple notes type yeah. of courses either. It, so it was a, a challenge, and uh, it worked out surprisingly well. Uh, I had, in high school, in that first year of college, I'd never truly applied myself that well. And actually, if I'd continued on that way, I probably wouldn't have had a high enough GPA to get a very good job. But being uh, under the gun of that two years, uh, I really concentrated, and it worked out extremely well. Uh, every course, I, I never dropped a course. I got good grades in all the courses. I never had less than 17 semester hours in a, in a semester. Uh, the high was 21 semester hours, and that was nearly all engineering courses, and that was the highest GPA of any semester I had because I simply did nothing else. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was go to school and study. So uh, I did graduate with a good GPA, but then I owed the Air Force another four years as a commissioned officer. And uh, that part of my career was pretty discouraging um, because I was, the Air Force uh, talks a good game, but when it comes to engineers, they don't really have a place for them, except for a very select few. So I was in a uh, engineering plant representative office. I was at Hughes Aircraft assigned just to monitor contracts. So uh, I would watch other engineers do the work that I wanted <laughs> to do. And I would check the box that says they had their safety chain training for the quarter and fill out reports. And uh, that was just not what I wanted to do. And we had a uh, career advisory uh, meeting one time. And uh, 50 lieutenants in a room that were all in plant representative offices in the Los Angeles area. And the guy stood up and talked for 30 minutes and said, uh, well, for your next assignment, you can go to this plant representative office or you can go to this contract management or you can do this. And finally, someone stood up and said, where can I go to be an engineer? And he essentially said, you can't. He said, unless an a, uh, Air Force laboratory requests you by name, you're not going to get in. And the reality of that was that requests by name went to Air Force Academy graduates. It was an old boy network type thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, when my time was about up, I literally walked down the hall at Hughes Aircraft and got a job, as simple as that. Uh, and working for Hughes Aircraft was an entirely different thing. It was what I wanted to do. I was in heaven. And what did you do for Hughes Aircraft? Uh, the group I was in uh, worked on a uh, advanced signal processing system that was uh, ultimately used in the ADCAP Mark 48 torpedo, SIRTAS uh, uh, sonar system, uh, BQQ-5 sonar system that was in all of the submarines and destroyers. Uh, and it was fascinating. I got to do real engineering work. Uh, 
and it was kind of funny when I uh, when they were interviewing me they looked at my Air Force background and said well you really haven't been doing engineering work and I absolutely understood that and for my four years they said well we'll credit you as if you had a year and a half of experience and I said fine I just want to get get to work and uh, after 90 days uh, we had a review they called me in and sat me down and said well we made a mistake you're an engineer and I got a substantial pay raise up to the where I should have been oh nice uh, it really worked that was really interesting uh, but the downside of that is that I was still living in California yeah, near Los Angeles uh, <laughs> wasn't where I wanted to be I can sympathize yeah so uh, after a while uh, use aircraft uh, we had been working on a big government contract uh, proposal and they didn't get that proposal so yeah I was kind of up in the air and uh, that was a good time to look for something else uh, use aircraft by the way you probably don't hear much about it now that's because uh, Hughes Aircraft was a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Hughes Medical, and as such, it was a uh, nonprofit organization. I don't understand how that works. Well, it's just the way it was. Hughes Aircraft okay. wasn't compelled to show a profit. They didn't have shareholders. And other companies like Boeing and, and Lockheed and things uh, thought that was unfair, so there was a big lawsuit, and ultimately Hughes Aircraft was uh, required to be broken up. And uh, a company that employed 50,000 people is gone. The uh, campus I worked on uh, employed tens of thousands of people uh, in Fullerton, California. Uh, had its own, had a big radar range out uh, behind the plant uh, for testing their radars, uh, their own fire station it was a huge facility and it's all gone completely completely raised and the company is something you never hear about anymore and it's it makes me a little sad to see that go it, it was a fairly good place to work I enjoyed it but as I said I was looking for something else and uh, at one of the last things I did at Hughes Aircraft was doing some uh, a Gatorade design and uh, again, they don't have Gatorades anymore. It's FPGAs now, but uh, I've done some fairly complex Gatorades. And uh, that was attractive to a little company in Utah called iOmega, which uh, is still around, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I went there to do uh, some uh, uh, Gatorade for their product at the time that was the uh, called the Bernoulli box. And that was... Uh, uh, Eight-inch disk drive, uh, cartridge replaceable disk drive that had uh, uh, actually had a floppy disk inside of it, but uh, they could get uh, 10 megabytes on that floppy disk, and that was remarkable for the time. Again, this was the uh, mid-80s now, and I worked on that, and uh, there was the first time I encountered uh, CAD systems for printed circuit board design. Uh, some of the earliest CAD systems. It was uh, very interesting. And uh, the Bernoulli box was moderately uh, successful. You may you may remember iOmega from the the mid to late 90s. They had a product called the Zip Drive. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I think yeah. they had the Zip Drive and then a, a Jazz Drive. I, I, I'm not as yes, confident it, about that. Yes, it was that. something like that. But uh, that was after my time. I, I worked on what would have been the precursor to the zip drive, but it wasn't a product at the time. Uh, I worked on the 8-inch Bernoulli boxes, and uh, they were some uh, heavy iron. I mean, it was one of those boxes weighed about 50 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but uh, uh, it was very effective for the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very uh, pleased and proud to do what I did there. Uh, but... Uh, Later in the 80s, they uh, had some hard times and had a big layoff, and I got caught up in that. And uh, employment was slow at the time. I had to go back to California. Didn't want to, but uh, the company that came up was uh, CalComp. I don't know if, uh, if that's a name that anybody still remembers. It's not ringing a bell for me. Uh, 
they made plotters uh, mainly. Okay. Uh, pen plotters that competed with uh, HP and large format electrostatic plotters that did uh, D and E size color sheets uh, that were often used for map making and things like that where you needed a big color print. And they worked very well, but again, it's a technology that's gone away and CalComp has gone away. And so you did mention that your first experience with CAD design and PCB design was at iOmega. And, and frankly, um, most of how I know you is you're considered among those of us that know you as the wizard of PCB design. And, and that's one, because of your experience in PCB design, and two, because of the long flowing white beard you have. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a two-tone thing. Is mm-hmm. that something where you took that with you to CalComp and did PCB there, or is that something you came back to later? Uh, at CalComp, we uh, we had a, uh, uh, a dedicated PCB designer that did that, but we worked closely with him. And uh, interesting, they used a uh, system. Uh, at the time, CalComp had recently been purchased by Lockheed, and so Lockheed had a CAD system called the Lockheed Star, they did uh, work in that. Uh, and uh, I spent a year at CalComp. We designed a uh, I.O. board for their electrostatic plotters. And the interesting thing then uh, was uh, we did a full board simulation, which was, again, something remarkable for its time. Uh, and uh, uh, it was very effective even. We. Uh, and, and this simulated the processor that was on the board, uh, 68020, and the board had memory and uh, disk drive interfaces. Uh, it was the I.O. for the plotter. And so that was a, a great learning experience in that aspect of uh, ECAD. But uh, again, I didn't like being in California, if I could help it. <laughs> and just really quick, where are you yeah. from originally? Right here. In Boise? In Boise. Okay. So I Boise, was, Idaho is your home. Uh, in fact, I was born probably half a mile from here in uh, at St. Alphonsus Hospital. At St. Al's? Oh, just down the street? Yeah, except it yeah. wasn't there at the time. It was, uh, well, in a different location. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, so uh, because of that, you're CalComp and said, okay, I need to get out of California again. Yeah, and that's when... Uh, I found a position opening at Micron uh, Technology in Boise. Okay. That was fun. Uh, interesting interview and everything. Uh, they, at the time, were working up a memory applications group. Uh, I never got into DRAM design itself, but uh, at Micron they decided that, uh, gee, we make the DRAM, we maybe ought to make the products that DRAM goes into. And uh, so this memory application group was tasked with uh, doing memory design uh, for different uh, computers and things. Uh, computers at that time, like Compaq and, and Amiga and others, uh, all had unique memory systems. Uh, they didn't have standard SIMs that plug in like they do today. Oh, I so, didn't know that. Yeah. When did that transition happen? Uh that probably started in the, uh, uh, hard to say, in the 90s. Okay. Uh, but uh, this was still the late 80s, and uh, things like the Amiga had a uh, interesting, okay, you want to get off into one of the stories? Yeah, yeah. I'd love and to hear a Interesting story. thing, the, the Amiga had its own plug-in memory board that was just a memory array. There wasn't much logic on it other than the DRAM. And uh, it was a big selling product for Micron. And uh, there was a memory shortage at the time. Uh, DRAM was expensive. And they were selling these boards and uh, thought that that was a good business. And then they noticed uh, someone in uh, the back of Computer Shopper, which was eBay for that time. Computer Shopper was a huge magazine that came out every month. It was like two inches thick at one time. But uh, they saw people selling Amiga memory boards that didn't have any memory on them. They were zero, so you could populate it yourself. And uh, we looked at that, and I thought, okay, that was interesting. And then they looked closer and found out that it was Micron memory boards with the memory removed. 
it turns out that people were making money by buying Micron Amiga memory boards, removing the DRAM, selling the DRAM at a premium because there was a shortage, and then dumping the boards in the back of the magazine. Wow. So uh, right after realizing that, Micron stopped socketing the DRAM chips, soldered them on, and probably sold very few Amiga boards after that because there really wasn't a market for them. Uh, but we also did memory products for uh, Hewlett-Packard printers at the time, the LaserJet uh, 2 and 3. Uh, and we did some video cards for uh, Macintosh and uh, uh, PCs. Uh, we actually had one of the highest rated uh, Macintosh video cards at the time for the uh, uh, I can't remember which model it was for, but uh, it was plugging into a system that Apple didn't want other people to plug things into. And uh, That sounds like Apple, very proprietary. It, yes. Uh, I mean, it was even hard to get the box open. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, actually, Micron fabricated and sold a tool to open up the Macintosh box. So that was when I got to work on a lot of different projects. And the the one of the neatest things when I started work there, uh, came in the first day and, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And the guys looked around and, uh, said, okay, there's a compact computer over there in the corner. We really haven't looked at it. Go see what you can do with that. And that was the sum total of my instruction. First I had to fix it because it was broke, <laughs> but, uh, compact at the time, again, had a, uh, proprietary memory system. And uh, I made, uh, over the next six months, I did half a dozen products for compact computers. First, uh, encountering the use of PCAD at the time, it was a very... Uh, CAD systems prior to that had been workstation-based on Sun systems and things. Uh, PCAD was one of the early uh, systems that worked on personal computers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got very involved with that, uh, did my own designs and layouts, and uh, learned a lot about that. And they were uh, quite uh, reasonably successful products. I'm sure they shipped in the tens of thousands at least. So were you basically self-taught on your PCB design at this point? Yes. And that's good and bad. I've got a rather long screed on that if you want to get into it, but maybe later. Because there normally there isn't much formal education in printed circuit board design. Mm-hmm. So most people are self-taught at the beginning, at least. And uh, for the technology of that day, that worked. As uh, technology advanced and speeds got faster, uh, that often failed to work. And you had to learn. You were forced to learn signal integrity and power integrity and uh, all of those things that are important in print circuit board design today. Did it make you at all nervous that as a self-taught designer, you were creating these products, and as you say, they were being shipped in the tens of thousands? You're like, man, I hope that worked. Uh, It made me very nervous, but it made me, that was one of the most gratifying things was to see a product of mine on a shelf that somebody would buy and use. I was thrilled. That was, that was amazing. And it, it was the same way for the iOmega disk drives. I was really gratified that those were a a successful product. And that's one of the uh, things about engineering that uh, really motivates me. I I enjoy doing things that people will use. Mm -hmm. That's that's exciting to me. So how much longer were you at Micron? Uh, At that time, I was at Micron for about four years. And this memory applications division at Micron had a uh, uh, sort of a cyclical history because when uh, DRAMs were selling good and they were making a lot of money from DRAMs, they would say, why are we wasting time on this these memory application products? They detract from our business. When there was a glut of DRAMs and they weren't making a lot of money, they would say, well, we should be putting our DRAMs into products and making the profit off of that. And so there was about an 18-month cycle of that uh, feast and famine, uh, and it affected our, our group. And uh, 
At the time, Micron was also making, uh, beginning into manufacturing memory SIMs, the standard memory devices. Our group was affiliated with the group that did the SIM manufacturing. And one time I was in the cafeteria, uh, and the manager of the group was sitting there talking to somebody else, and uh, I wasn't intending to overhear, but they weren't being quiet. And the manager said to the other guy, we're a good SIM manufacturer. We could be a great SIM manufacturer if we didn't have all these other distractions. And that's when I thought, well, maybe it's time to look around. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a little startup called Data Cash here in Boise that was uh, funded by Morrison Knudsen. Mm-hmm. They're um, a, a construction company. Big construction they? company. Yeah. And they had a uh, president at the time that... Uh, had some ideas about diversifying Morrison Knutson, and that, that's when they started the uh, locomotive manufacturing that's still here in Boise, mm-hmm. and uh, several other ventures. And one of them was uh, this data cache that uh, was intended, uh, their, their goal was to produce a uh, high-end uh, database server for transaction processing. And it was to be uh, literally a a supercomputer with uh, distributed processors. And uh, I was the eighth employee that they hired, and I was the only electrical engineer. And they needed a node processor board that incorporated uh, disk interfaces and DRAM and the processor and so on. And uh, so, again, it was one of those fun, very... uh, enlightening experiences where I was able to start from ground zero, buy all the test equipment, everything I needed, uh, design the board, and it worked again, fortunately. And uh, we had a, uh, we were in the process of uh, developing quite an interesting system that went on for several years. but uh, it had some problems. Uh, their concept actually, unfortunately, started too late. If they'd mm-hmm. started that five years earlier with their concept, they would have had better luck. And uh, it was uh, built around a processor called the transputer. Again, it's something that probably nobody remembers. I've heard of it, but I okay. have no idea what it is. It, it was largely used in academic circles and uh, it was uh, oriented towards parallel processing. And uh, the fellow that, uh, one of the co-founders of this company uh, had done his uh, uh, PhD thesis on transaction processing in in parallel processing environments. And so he was implementing his thesis in this company. And uh, it was, uh, again, fascinating. Uh, A lot of mistakes. Uh, I learned some things. One of the things I learned was that I needed personally to be more assertive. Uh, the uh, president of the company had some some uh, preconceived ideas as to what he wanted, and in some cases they were not practical, and uh, I wasn't able to convince him of that, and I mm. probably should have been more assertive. Uh, I think that's a typical engineering thing. Most yeah. engineers, as a generalization, we may be arrogant sometimes <laughs> in thinking that we're always right, but I feel like in most electrical engineers I know, it's like, well, I know I'm right, but then you don't actually yeah. put that out to the people that need to know. Yeah, so so we took a few sidetracks. Ultimately, it actually came back to what I thought it really needed to be, but uh, the delays didn't help. Uh, there were several other factors, but uh, ultimately the uh, president of Morrison Knutson got canned for his uh, his ventures that were mostly losing money, and the funding for uh, uh, Data Cash went away. It was purchased by Hitachi, oh. so actually I'd forgotten that I worked for Hitachi for a while. Uh, again, one of the largest corporations in the world. Uh, but uh, the funny thing is, uh, they had purchased data cache for its uh, for its IP, and then they proceeded to discount that IP and say, "No, we want to do it this way." 
and uh, their way was uh, a lot of the things that we had figured out didn't work, but they had to try it anyway. And uh, ultimately, they closed it all up and left Boise, and it went to California, and I never heard another thing about it. But I was out of a job again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this does seem very cyclic. Yeah. uh, Sometimes sometimes leaving a job is your choice, and sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes it's just bad circumstances. Uh, After that, I wound up, uh, the first thing that, came up that looked good was Intel in uh, Portland. So I went there. uh, I was actually there for less than a year. Let's just shorten that story by saying that I will never buy another Intel product as long as I live, if it's all possible. Uh, I pretty much despise that company. Wow. Those are some pretty strong words. And it seems like there's probably a lot of interesting backstory to that. There are, if if you want to deviate. Ah, you know, I, I could. I, I've been in places. I, I my experience has been it can matter a lot of which division you're in or whatever. Exactly. So, exactly. And, I, and, and maybe I, I you saw were unfortunate. I, I saw a very small portion of Intel, but as one example. I don't know if it was company policy, but they actually had a name for it. It was called Compression, in which they took an office building intended for 400 people, and they, as a matter of policy, put 600 people in it. (laughs) And they thought it was better to save money on rent uh, than to have their engineers standing in line at the restroom. And there was always a line at the restroom because the building was overcrowded. I don't think I've ever worked somewhere where there's been a line at a restroom. Yes, it's insane. And there was no meeting spaces in the in the building. It, Intel had a lot of meetings, and, I, and that was throughout Intel. I'm sure of that. Yeah, any big company, yeah. But uh, we would have a meeting where there would be 12 people sitting around a table. There would be 18 people standing around the walls. There would be half a dozen people standing outside in the hallway leaning in the door. And that was not unusual. That was typical. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, that was just a a personnel issue, but they had some business practices that I didn't agree with as well. Uh, If something went wrong, it was never Intel's fault they would find a way to blame a supplier or something else. It it really uh, just turned my stomach a little bit. Even when, even when I took the data sheets and the documents and said, look, you're doing it wrong. It's not their fault. And uh, no, they, they wouldn't uh, listen to it. Hmm. So less than a year. Yeah. And then you moved back to Boise? I had washed your hands of that? I had the opportunity to move back to Boise to just about anything, which was a little company (laughs) called uh, Design Concepts International that did uh, uh, remote power monitoring, uh, boards that went into your power meter on the side of your house, and it reported outages and things. And uh, that was a very interesting uh, Again, I did uh, board layouts there, uh, did some firmware programming on PIC microcontrollers. Very interesting. But uh, were you self-taught on the firmware side as well? Yes. Uh, although, I mean, I had classes in college, but even by that time, uh, those classes were getting outdated. Uh, really didn't apply to uh, to modern firmware. and then the PIC programming that I did then is now completely outdated, of course. But uh, Everything moves so quickly in that area, especially recently. There were some experiences at Design Concepts that, uh, again, didn't sit well. After uh, after about nine uh, months, that company, at any rate, was purchased by uh, some other company in northern Idaho, and (laughs) they moved it, uh, which I was glad to see it go. And uh, then I had another opportunity at Micron and went back, 
which uh, worked out pretty well. I then stayed at Micron for another uh, 18 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So well, it, Almost it's a career in and of itself. Yeah, it? it was 22 years altogether at Micron. Again, uh, the, the, the group that I went into uh, uh, designed uh, memory testers that were used uh, internally to Micron. And uh, that was some very advanced technology, uh, very high speed because you, if you wanted to see what the signals were doing going into and coming out of the DRAM, you had to have something that worked faster than the DRAM. So it was uh, Peckle and Echel technologies, again, which are probably now totally obsolete. I have no idea what Peckle and Echel means, stands for. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. Yeah, that, that's emitter coupled logic and positive emitter coupled logic okay. uh, for whatever that's that, worth. That clarifies everything. Thank <laughs> yes. <you. laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, but it was fascinating. And again, I did printed circuit board designs of uh, very uh, high complexity, uh, thousands of components on a board, 12 to 20 layers. And at that time was when we discovered that uh, your uh, self-taught uh, makey learning uh, PCB design stopped working. Uh, you ran into high-speed design issues. And the best thing we ever did was uh, finally send uh, myself and several other people to the uh, PCB West design conference that happens every year, and it's still going on, and took uh, design classes there on uh, high-speed design aspects and other things. And uh, that completely changed the way we did design in that group. And it worked and served us extremely well for the next 10 years or more. I was going to ask, because you have a couple of certifications, including, I think it's CID? Yes. Which, that's a PCB design. Correct. Is, is that something you got at PCB West, or is that unrelated? Uh, the uh, really nice thing about a large company like Micron is that uh, when they're thinking straight, uh, they... Uh, are able to, uh, they have the resources to bring classes in-house. And there were 30 or 40 printed circuit board designers at Micron in all of their uh, divisions. So they brought in the classes that uh, taught the uh, design certification and did the testing in-house. Uh, they also brought in some of the very big names in signal integrity to teach classes. Uh, Howard Johnson wrote the book, High Speed Design, Black Magic. Yeah, Bruce uh, Archambault, Eric Bogatin, all of those people came in-house to, to give classes, and uh, it was uh, extremely valuable. Uh, that, that's really interesting. I, I also, um, I'm curious about that. I obviously don't have any certifications, even though I've done it. I've dabbled a little bit in PCB design, um, and I would love to learn more because I find it fascinating. Um when I was in the military, though, one of the things that they strongly encouraged and I did get was my PE. So I'm a licensed oh, professional engineer. Good and for you. Yes. You're a PE as well. That's correct. I have never used it. I Oh, no, I take that back. I stamped my brother-in-law's. Uh, he, he needed to do a, a deviation to his solar array on his house in Southern California. And he brought it to me, and I did all the calculations. And I was like, holy cow, this is my first time stamping. I wanted to make sure that I was doing it right. And um, being licensed in California, because that's where I was stationed at the time, also makes it even less applicable for me here up in, uh, mm -hmm. up here in Idaho. But I did it that one time. Other than that, I have never used my PE or never seen a benefit to it. Have you seen a benefit to being licensed? It, uh, like you, I've never had to stamp anything. Uh, I have in cases where I've done some contract work and I thought it would look look like a good thing, uh, and technically I'm supposed to. The one thing about a PE is uh, you've taken some effort to get it. It's not a simple thing to do. Most people don't bother, but many people are intimidated and would have a hard time doing it. But one of the things that stuck with me about it, uh, do you remember the oath that you gave? It's like the Hippocratic oath that doctors take and things. Or anything about it. I uh, do not of course, remember it all. <laughs> of course, I don't remember it either. But the one thing that sticks with me is that you must certify that you, above all, hold the public trust. Mm -hmm. 
I do remember that, yes. The ethics are very important. Mm-hmm. And that's been uh, important to me, perhaps because I've seen so much unethical practice in engineering. I, I wish that the mindset that went with PE was more uh, universal in the engineering field. I'm, I'm frankly disappointed in many of the things I've seen. I think that another thing I remember from that that I particularly liked is that as a PE, you're kind of certified to know your own limits. Yes. Even since I'm doubly certified, so somebody could say, hey, stamp this. If I don't feel comfortable with it, I have to do a self-evaluation to say, that's not my area, even though technically, legally, yes, but like skill-wise and ethically, that is not my area. And it's my responsibility to say, I'm, I'm sorry, but no, I can't sign this. Correct. So that was actually, for me, what stuck out the most is knowing and going back to my brother-in-law when he first came and asked me about it. I was like, oh, okay, give me some time. I want to make sure I actually know what I'm doing here and I'm comfortable before I, instead of just being like, oh, yeah, no problem, dude. There you yeah. go. And send it off. Because you are potentially legally responsible. It's yeah. a responsibility that... Uh, you know, in many states, a person can't use the title engineer unless they have a PE. Uh, yeah, that just happened in Oregon. Did you hear about that? I did not. Some guy, it, it's a very long story, but he got uh, fined, I, I don't know, I think it was one or $2,000 for saying that he was an engineer, and he wasn't a licensed engineer, and they just barely uh, rescinded the fine. They rescinded the fine because they just... Again, it's complicated, but yes, yeah. there was a very real example of somebody in Oregon getting fined for saying, I'm an engineer. It's like, you don't have a license, you're not an engineer. Yeah, yeah. In, in many cases. Again, since most engineers work for larger companies, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you can't uh, use the business name of engineering. You can't say you're uh, ABC Engineering unless someone in your company is a PE. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's something that's probably not enforced very much, but it's still there. So on, on perhaps a more exciting note, oh. I, I would like to hear some stories and kind of a, a best and worst of. So what, as an engineer working with engineers, what is the funniest mistake that you've seen made? Something... <laughs> Well, that's that's one of mine, and you, you may have heard it before. Uh, one of the first boards I did on my first stint at Micron Technology, it was a display board that, again, went in a memory tester. And uh, we were, it, it was my first use of this particular tool. It was PCAD, but a different version of PCAD. We were using uh, FPGAs that at the time were in pin grid arrays, Mm -hmm. which are square chips that have pins. And uh, I made all the uh, components in the uh, CAD program, wired up the board, uh, did all the layout, got the board back, and the technician built it, and he came back and said, this isn't working at all, not even close. And we got to looking at it, and... uh, on all of the pin grid arrays, there were five of them on the board. I had built them, again, not familiar with the tool, I had built them in X-ray view. <laughs> they were completely backwards. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was hilarious. Oh, no. But the funny thing about it is okay. they were through-hole pin grid arrays. So all you had to do was take the part and put it on the back of the board, and it worked. <laughs> wow. That is extremely fortuitous. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get any luckier than that? And, of course, I told people that it was on purpose for cooling reasons. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, you don't have the thermal management problem exactly. if you put it on this side. Sure. Of, of course. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So how lucky can you get? <laughs> Yeah, that that sounds a little bit terrifying. I could just imagine <laughs> everything, the all of the traces. I, you'd you'd have had to start all over. Yeah, 
Uh, oh. And of course, we did have to re-spin the board eventually, but mm-hmm. we had other changes to make to it anyway because it was the first iteration of that. But uh, I learned a lot in that mistake. And in fact, I had one board later, uh, again for a tester. The board was 24 inches in diameter and 28 inches in its longest dimension. It was a test head, and it was extremely complex, uh, mounted sockets and everything. They only needed one of these boards to fit on this particular tester, and fabricating the one board, not assembling, but just fabricating the board was $6,000. So if there had been any mistake, it was $6,000 down the tubes. And uh, it was fun. It worked. (laughs) (laughs) I was sweating, but uh, it was exciting, and it worked. Yeah, that that sounds like a lot of pressure right there. Just just sounds terrifying. Now, is there another time that was terrifying? You mentioned earlier some of the engineers that hmm, I don't know about these engineers. What what was the scariest engineering thing you saw? Something where if somebody else hadn't caught it, uh, it would have had very ugly ramifications, or just something that did go through and it's just kind of painful. Well. I wouldn't say it's scary. It was it was one of the experiences that uh, that really discouraged me about some things. Uh, at one of the small companies, uh, they hired an engineer that was uh, drinking buddies with the vice president of the company, and so he could do no wrong. You couldn't if you disagreed with him. It always went uh, the other way, mm-hmm. and so. After a while, I quit disagreeing with him and just let him do what he had to do. And uh, uh, at the time, we were doing firmware for the PIC microcontroller, and the company had a rudimentary network, uh, which also meant there was no network security, so all of the files were there for anybody to see, and I watched him work. I watched his firmware coding. And the, the deal about him was that he came into the company late, he didn't like the PIC microcontroller. Mm-hmm. He wanted to use 8051. But uh, everything we had was designed to run a PICS, and it was going to stay that way, at least for the time being. But he griped about it the whole time. I watched him write intentionally bad code, uh, intentionally terrible code. Why? He did that so that he could later fix it and be a hero. Think about that. You see, the managers didn't know what was going on. He would say, oh, the PIC doesn't have enough registers. It doesn't run fast enough. But uh, a couple of weeks later, he'd say, oh, I managed to, to work that out, and uh, you know, nobody else could have done it, but I made it work. Uh, I managed to overcome the weaknesses of this hardware you've given me. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. I, I just feel like I can see this being effective, unfortunately, but I could also see managers thinking, well, why didn't you do it this way in the first place? But, but no, uh, yeah. again, drinking buddy type thing. Yeah. He, he could go and tell any story he wanted. And so, uh, of your forty plus years or forty-ish years of experience as an engineer, what has been the worst part? What has been the part that's made you think, "Why am I doing this?" I think sometimes it's the. You'll notice my best experiences have been when I've been told to go do something and I've been able to do it. The worst part is those experiences when there's been a lack of control, where uh, you're directed to do something in a particular way, a way that you don't believe is the best way to do it or the correct way to do it, or in some cases, the ethical way to do it. That's very discouraging. And sometimes those are the situations where you just wish you could say, I don't need this job, but usually you're not in that situation and you just have to bear with it. Yeah, that's a struggle. I, As you say that, that does make sense. And I think maybe I'm just thinking of it myself, but the, like you said, you got into engineering because you enjoyed making things. And when somebody says, go make this, and you're given that freedom, you do get a great sense of accomplishment. Yes. Whereas, yeah, if somebody says, go make this, and you have to do it exactly this way, whether or not you think it's the right way, yeah, and almost feel more like a, a technician, uh, and not to say anything bad about a technician, but if you're going to be a technician, be a technician. Yeah, the, the wonderful part of engineering is the ability to use your creativity. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the exciting thing. 
Yeah. And, and that actually is a perfect lead into what my next question was going to be, and that is, what has been your favorite part? And I'm wondering, have you just answered it? Uh, I think I have in, in some of those cases with data cache. The first year there when things were, were moving, uh, there were a few drawbacks, but uh, <clears throat> the, the ability to uh, have a great influence on the design and uh, bend it the way that you wanted the way that you thought it should be was uh, very gratifying. It's, it was exciting. And, and just seeing things work. Putting something together, I made that. It works. People are using it. It's a benefit. It's a benefit to the company. Perhaps it's a benefit to society. Whatever. Uh, that's the important thing. Well, that sounds amazing. And it's been really fascinating hearing the the different steps of your career. It sounds like you have been all over the place both uh, geographically and in terms of what you do yeah and and we missed a few steps already <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh yeah uh, and i'm retired now uh i do a little bit of contracting work when it's when it looks good uh, mm-hmm. but uh i still enjoy making things i i do 3d printing and and uh i've got a a laser cutter and a a mill and and uh, and router table that I'm working on, and so I'll never stop making things. I don't think, even if it's just on paper, I I do a lot of things that I put on Thingiverse. Uh, I've got a uh, hundred or so different designs, just things that uh, come up that I need for myself, and put it on there. And in total, over the years, those things have been downloaded. Uh, tens of thousands of times, and uh, that is gratifying. I like to think that some people think that's neat enough to print it themselves and use it. I I really enjoy that. Yeah. I've only thought about putting something on Thingiverse once, and I came up with an idea. I was so excited about it. I was modeling it, and it was about halfway through the modeling that I realized there was a fatal flaw in my in my plan, and that was pretty disappointing. But yeah, just that idea of, oh, man, I really need this, and I bet anybody in this situation would need it as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they would, but I, I never actually solved that problem. So. <laughs> uh, well, I really do appreciate you coming here and spending this time with me, Gary. Um, it, it really has been fascinating, and I appreciate it. Well, this has been fun. It's been an uh, interesting experience for me. I don't get to spout off like that very often, and usually I keep it in my own mind churning and that's probably not healthy so it's good to get it out (laughs) well maybe we'll have to have you back again some other time and we'll get into a little bit more depth in those stories i I could tell you about the uh the laser jet memory wars between micron and hp (laughs) that that's a long story in itself i I mean the fact that it had the word laser the word jet and wars in it 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 sounds like (laughs) it's going to be a really good story Uh, freaking lasers yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back again. We'll get that story. But again, thank you very much. And for those of you that are listening, uh, we appreciate you sticking through it. And we'd love to hear any comments. And if you have any questions, um, I am going to volunteer Gary Sr. because he'd probably be interested in sharing some more. So thank you again. I'll talk your ear off. (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you.